0: From KCRW, this is Nocturne. This episode is not suitable for children, so if you're listening with young kids, you might want to stop and pick it up later.
1: I was very lucky to be put in a class by an organization called Risk. It is a course that is for journalists who work in conflict zones. 12 to 20 journalists come in and learn from military experts. And they basically teach you how to deal with shrapnel wounds, gunshot wounds, how to patch legs, broken arms, and how to triage for emergencies when you or your colleague has been hurt. And so we we had a group of about 20 people in Nairobi. It was a wonderful experience. Unfortunately, we did um, lose one of our journalists a few months later. At the end, you have this full-on battlefield recreation. Each dummy has a different injury and they say, okay, you gotta run to the dummy and fix the problems within, you know, two minutes or whatever. But what they don't tell you is that they're gonna start throwing fireworks at you and black cats and there's gonna be smoke and they're gonna start these machines that shake the ground. You think it's just going to be this quick, quick exercise, final exercise, and it's just like extremely intense. In fact, I went back to the room that we were staying in after the simulation and, and cried because I never want to be in this situation when these are real people, because this is a horrifying thing to have to have to do. But every journalist should absolutely do this kind of battlefield medic training or hostile environment training. It is critical to us surviving.
0: More after this. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com slash join. Listening to Nocturne, I'm Vanessa Lowe.
1: My name is Katie Nelson. I am 31 years old. I am a journalist and photographer based in Nairobi, Kenya. I travel kind of in between Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Zanzibar, Somalia.
0: Katie's work has been published by National Geographic, Associated Press, and Public Radio International, among others.
1: I primarily am an investigative reporter. I cover human rights issues, sexual minority rights, uh, refugee rights, women's rights. And I also cover global health issues, so that's access to medication, negligence, neglected diseases.
0: The work Katie does puts her in some dangerous situations.
1: Well, my danger scale is kind of off compared to a lot of people, I think. You know, Nairobi is not, it's not a safe city in comparison to where I grew up in the Midwest. We have had serious terrorist attacks. We had the Westgate Mall attack that killed many, many people. And that was by al-Shabaab. We've had smaller terrorist attacks. We recently had elections in Kenya, and while those were Mostly peaceful, but in the, many of the informal settlements where, you know, a lot of the tensions were because people had been oppressed and, and were vulnerable for so, so many years. You know, there, w- there was some violence, and the military really, really cracked down hard on people, and including journalists, including the press, including myself, and, and that did get quite dangerous. And there were times during that reporting in August and October where I, I was afraid that I wasn't going to get out and still have all my limbs you know i it was quite scary i was i was working in, in nairobi i was covering the elections for some outlets and After the first results came in on election day, a lot of us anticipated that there was going to be a problem because in 2007, 2008, there was a fair amount of violence after an election that killed about 1,000 people. So we were all kind of expecting that there was going to be an issue, but we didn't know how large. And so we immediately went down to the informal settlements near my house where a lot of the opposition party members live and the supporters live. Now, what had happened was that The incumbent, President Kenyatta, won the first elections. And so the opposition strongholds in these informal settlements were incredibly angry because they had felt like that that election had been stolen from them. And in fact, I mean, the Electoral Commission did come in later and say that that vote was rigged. So we went down there to kind of check out what was going on, and there were a lot of very, very angry, drunk, unemployed men down there who were starting to burn tires and starting to you know throw bottles. It it was a a chaotic scene that was getting more and more chaotic with uh, the amount of people that were coming in and so I was with my roommate who shoots for Associated Press and then our friend who shoots for the New York Times and then my friend who uh, shoots for Vice and we went down there and they're all men and I was the only woman I had a helmet my roommate had a helmet as well and then the other two had a helmet and a bulletproof vest on but it's interesting because freelancers we can't usually afford our own protective equipment so i didn't have i didn't have a jacket i couldn't afford one so i went in with just a helmet on and you know it started to get really chaotic people started to throw rocks and then big boulders that had rope around them kind of like a sling shot or something and then people had two by fours with huge huge nails in them and started going after people and you you can never prepare to be shot at you can never prepare to see somebody get their head smashed in or whatever you know but you just keep shooting and you have to do it against all instincts and as a woman you know you kind of sense when you're a bit more vulnerable and I've gotten in dicey situations before where I've run to the only woman in the crowd and we just exchange nods and she helps me out, you know, she goes and hides me or brings me out or whatever. You know, when you don't see any women, you know that you're nobody's going to protect you then. And I saw that there were no women in there, and I thought to myself, this is not good. And about 20 seconds later, a group of guys surrounded me and threw a burning tire at me. And I luckily got out just in the nick of time. And uh, the military came and just, just cracked down on everyone and... Um, You know, that day, some people were were really severely hurt. In other slums and informal settlements, people were killed by the military.
0: Once Katie was out of immediate harm from the rioters, there was still the issue of getting out of the settlements. The reporters had all gone in the car hired by the New York Times reporter. And he wasn't ready to leave.
1: And so somebody actually hid me behind a a little um, shack. And then we had to call in a motorcycle driver. I have a private driver who drives a motorcycle in Nairobi because it's easier to get around the traffic. And um, he was supposed to come pick me up, but he was from the uh, kind of the opposing tribe or the tribe that wouldn't have been safe in that situation. So he was really hesitant to come down and pick me up. And so I called a secondary driver and all of the roads around me had been blockaded. And um, somehow he got in and saw me and grabbed me and whisked me up, but then we couldn't quite get away because all the roads were blocked. And uh, finally we got out and I was taken out, but the boys stayed for a few more hours. I mean, and some of their photos, you know, were, were incredible. You kind of feel like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have missed that. But I mean, it was good that I got out, but some of their photos were on the front of the New York Times for a few days. You know, I'm not gonna lie. There's a lot of journalists that will say they weren't scared. I was terrified. I was terrified. I. I have always lived my life thinking I will never be afraid of people. And I was afraid of people at that point. You know, these situations become frenzies, they're unpredictable, and when you walk into a crowd of very angry people who have nothing to lose at this point, you know, I was very afraid.
0: That story you just heard, about Katie dodging flying rocks and burning tires, being whisked out of harm's way on a motorcycle, that's not what anyone would have expected Katie's life to be like just a few years earlier.
1: My mother says that I was a very quiet child and that I wasn't a very active child. And there were little hints that something wasn't quite right when I was a child, Like, I would automatically fall asleep in the car two minutes after kind of driving. I was just generally quite sleepy, but my parents thought I had this really quiet temperament. And so they never really knew something was wrong for for many, many years. I didn't either. But as I got older, I just started getting really tired all the time. And it wasn't just exhaustion. It was like I couldn't think straight. I couldn't remember words. I couldn't remember where I was. And as I got older, maybe in high school and started to drive, I would drive and not know how I got to a certain place, or I would just kind of um, zone out and suddenly arrive at a location that I never intended to be at. But we really didn't know anything was wrong with me until I was 25 years old. That's not entirely true. It was clear
0: that something was wrong with Katie. It just wasn't clear what it was.
1: I was extremely, extremely depressed um, and I was anxious a lot and uh, it got quite dark when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old and as I got older and, you know, entered college, I I really wasn't functioning well as a healthy adult. I was put on a lot of different antidepressants. I was put on anti-anxiety medication and nothing was helping. Nothing was relieving the pain that I felt.
0: Katie cycled through some pretty self-harming behaviors. She cut herself. She stopped eating. When she was 18, she ended up at an inpatient facility for young people with eating disorders. She saw a lot of different mental health professionals. And she continued to get worse and worse for reasons that no one could understand, least of all Katie. All she knew for sure is that life was devastatingly exhausting.
1: Everyone saw me, counselors saw me, and psychiatrists and psychologists and They just kept giving me more medication and more medication. And I just, I never got better. It was incredibly sad because I thought that somebody could make me better and nobody was making me better. And I really was piece by piece losing my sense of myself and and really my soul. So it, it continued to escalate for many years after that too.
0: Even in the face of the pain she was in, Katie graduated college in four years and got a master's degree in public health, She'd also discovered a love of journalism and worked for a local newspaper. But it all took a Herculean effort.
1: I remember um, every day having to get up in the morning and try to take a shower around, like, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning. And I was so tired, you know, five minutes after I got up that I would have to sit on the floor of the shower and wash my hair because I couldn't stand and I couldn't really lift my hands above my head. So I was sleeping... Anywhere from 14 minimum to there were days I slept 22 hours out of a day. But because I was on so many medications, I was on like 13 different medications at one point that were antidepressants and anti-anxieties that my doctors just thought perhaps this is a, a strange side effect of these medications. You couldn't parse away what was causing this depression and causing this Exhaustion. Um, all we knew was that I was incredibly sad and I, I was very, uh, very keen on taking my life. I, I mean, because when you suffer for so long, you suffer for 10, 13, 15 years and nobody knows what's wrong with you. They know you're not right and you know you're not right. You finally say, I, I can't do this any longer. I can't suffer like this any longer.
0: By the time Katie was 24, the weight of her mystery illness was crushing her.
1: I was living with uh, my boyfriend at the time, and I wasn't able to go to work. I couldn't go out at night. I couldn't be a partner. I, I wasn't even a human being at that point in my perspective. And I kind of just quit everything. And you know when you're really sick, sometimes you just want to be alone. I just wanted to be alone. I didn't, I didn't want anybody to see me like that, because I didn't, I knew that that wasn't who I was supposed to be. You know, I had started out this career as a journalist, and I was promising, and I was working hard, and I was doing well in school, and I had always been an overachiever, and then suddenly, like, I had lost everything. I lost everything. And I just had become this monster that I didn't want to be anymore.
0: Around this time, Katie's boyfriend came home one night to find her at rock bottom.
1: I was sitting at my desk just cutting my arms with a razor blade and uh, he, you know, was obviously very concerned and called my mother, they were very close, and we decided to take me to the hospital and I just kept saying, I'm just so exhausted, I'm just so tired, I just need to sleep for a long time, I just want to sleep for a long time. and when you say that to somebody in the ER and you have, you know, all these cuts up your arms and you're a hundred pounds and you look like you haven't slept in 25 years, they, they become very concerned that you're suicidal. And I don't know that I wanted to die. I just wanted to sleep forever. The doctor went away and came back with two police officers and they escorted me 100-pound me into the back of an ambulance and shut the door and said, if you fight us, we're going to restrain you. And um, they took me to the the county psychiatric facility.
0: Katie was released within a couple of days, but her view of herself was at an all-time low.
1: I thought I was I was crazy. You, you forget what it's like to be human. I mean, honestly, I, I, all my life consisted of was just getting up and trying to survive every day.
0: Finally, a psychiatrist that Katie had been seeing hit upon a new idea.
1: She said to me, I think you're sleeping a lot, maybe we should just check out and see if you have some sort of sleep issue. You know what, I really want you to get a sleep study. Katie was hesitant.
0: After all the therapy and medications, she didn't have hope that anything could help. But she finally relented.
1: I checked in at the sleep clinic in Minneapolis and, you know, a nice nurse came up to me and they brought me into a room that honestly looked like a hotel room. It was very nice and very quiet. And he hooked me up to these machines, kind of like put a cap on my head and glued these electrodes or something to my scalp. And the test results came back maybe a few days later, and I went to my doctor's office, and I'm like, yeah, what did, what did you find? And he said, well, Ms. Nelson, you have a very severe case of narcolepsy, idiopathic hypersomnia. We're, we're quite sure that it's narcolepsy. You know, you never really think that you have a really strange disease like narcolepsy. Narcolepsy is an autoimmune disease, they believe, and it's triggered by some environmental factor, like you know having the flu when you're a kid, or for me, I believe it was having chickenpox, And it uh, kills off all of these parts of your brain that regulate sleep. So it's a progressive disease in the sense that it slowly by slowly, year by year, kind of eats away at these regulating parts of your brain for sleep, but you really don't see it peak until many years after that one event.
0: Finally, there was an answer, narcolepsy, a chronic neurological disorder that impairs your ability to regulate sleep-wake cycles. Whereas most people experience distinct and regular periods of wakefulness and fatigue, usually divided into day and night, Katie continued to feel the overwhelming need to sleep, regardless of what time of day it was. And while the word narcolepsy may bring to mind images of people collapsing in sleep in the middle of a conversation— That's type 1 narcolepsy. Katie had type 2.
1: For me, it's a very gradual exhaustion to the point of, like, not functioning. When I left the doctor's office, he said to me, you know, I'm going to give you a prescription for Ritalin, which is kind of the standard go-to for people with narcolepsy um, stimulant medication. And I went home and I was like, yep, they just gave me another prescription to take. You know, I don't want to take this. And my mom's like, just try it. So the next day, um, I was sitting on the couch. It was the afternoon and I decided to try it. So I took my first dose and fell back asleep on the couch and woke up 45 minutes later and felt like myself again. Not the angry, depressed, morose, person that I had been for you know five six seven years but actually myself I felt happy and awake and alert and clear-minded my mom looked at me and she said I have my daughter back and uh, there was nothing you know there's nothing better than that I mean there's a lot of crying and and then I I stayed up and I helped her cook dinner which I hadn't ever really done because I was so tired by the time that dinner came around and I helped her cook dinner and um, we all kind of just looked at each other like this, this couldn't be it, could it? I mean, could I really have narcolepsy and could this really save me?
0: Learning the diagnosis of narcolepsy and getting treatment for it changed
1: Kitty's life. In fact, it kind of started it. It completely changed my world. Everything changed. I'm actually incredibly healthy, I'm told at least, for somebody who has a chronic illness.
0: Once Katie started feeling better, her impulse was to go back to the things she'd loved years earlier.
1: I felt so behind. But I just said, you know what, I know that I love writing, and I know that I like telling people stories. And every time I was in a refugee camp, people would say, just tell people my story. Because if people know my story, people will change The situation. And I and I believed that, and I still believe that in many ways, um, that our stories are the most powerful parts of our lives. And so I really just kind of went full in on journalism.
0: She worked again for a time at a local paper in Minneapolis.
1: I loved my work, but it didn't feel it didn't feel big enough for me. You know, I had I had really lost everything. I mean at 25. I had lost my health. I had lost my mental health and mental well-being. I had lost um, my partner. And I thought, well, I can't I can't live a life that small, given that I know what it's like to have everything taken away from me. I need to live a big life, because that's what I've been given. And that's that's the opportunity that's in front of me.
0: The life that was calling to Katie was in Africa. She'd fallen in love with Nairobi, Kenya when she was 19, doing volunteer work there, and had gone back frequently.
1: And so I packed up all my bags and just said, I'm going to go try to live a big life in, in East Africa.
0: The experience of living with narcolepsy, while not something that Katie would choose, has had a big influence on her reporting.
1: I know what it's like to be sick, and I know how vulnerable you feel and how alone you feel and how desperate you can be to feel better. You know, I was just in Uganda reporting about this and I found myself many times, many, many times, holding my sources, hugging my sources, doing things that we're not supposed to do as journalists but we're supposed to do as human beings. You know, there was a a young woman, she's 28, and um, her name's Maureen, and she was diagnosed with HIV. Uh, She was in a forced marriage, and um, her husband was HIV positive along with the two other wives and didn't tell her. And so she found out a few years later when she had full-blown AIDS, and she's sitting in this small room. She had been evicted from her home because she had HIV. She was sitting in this concrete room alone in this rural area in Uganda, and she said to me, I'm so lonely. You know, and I'm only, like, three years older than her. And she said, I'm just so lonely. Could you bring me a radio so that I can hear people's voices during the day? Because I have nobody to talk to. And nobody will talk to me. You know, I looked at her, and I just said, I'm so sorry. I'm really, I'm very so sorry. Uh, and, you know, I'm crying. And I said, I know, I know that it's different, and it's hard to... It's hard for me to even compare, but I know what loneliness is like. I know what that loneliness and the emptiness and the um, desperation for anything else. I know what that's like and, um, and I'm so sorry. Because you, you know, you don't say to people, I'm going to fix this, because you know, you don't know that you can fix it. You don't know that it's going to get better for anybody. I didn't know that it was ever going to get better for me. But you can say, you know, I hear you, I hear your story, I am sorry that this is happening to you. There have been many times in my career where, you know, I've broken those barriers and hugged my sources and held their hands as they're dying. I think I'm a good person to have with somebody who's going through the worst pain of their life because I know what that's like and I know what it's like to be alone and I don't want Anybody to be alone on the worst day of their life.
0: You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. The show is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Nick White is our senior editor. Nocturne is distributed by KCRW and also receives support from KCRW's independent producer project. For more information about the show, go to nocturnepodcast.org. You can find a link to Katie Nelson and her work in the show notes for this episode. We're on social media at Nocturne Podcast. Thanks for listening.